Thank you all for being here this afternoon. My name is Oscar Gardner. I'm a, uh, I'm a, recovering, I'm a recovering journalist. Um, uh, Long-time journalists have lived in Los Angeles for um, about 20 years, worked at the Los Angeles Times for, uh, for quite a bit of that time. Um, but uh, I'm originally from uh, San Antonio, Texas, where I grew up, uh, which I consider to be part of the Gulf of Mexico as well, so I'm glad to hear Ned, uh, Ned speak of that. Um, I uh, spent most of my career writing about uh, culture and music, uh, and have always had a huge affinity for uh, New Orleans music, particularly, um, and the culture. And, uh, and, and it's kind of part of, a, of, an, of an exploration that I'm doing right now for a, a book project that I'm working on. Uh, uh, that is about, essentially it's about the cultural relationships between Mexicans and blacks in, in the Gulf of Mexico region. Uh, for my purposes, you know, if you draw a line from New Orleans to Veracruz across the Gulf, and then take those parallel lines inward towards the United States, that's kind of the region that, that, uh, uh, that I'm exploring and, and writing about. Um, very excited to be here this afternoon and with this distinguished panel as well, who uh, you are about to meet. And I will start on my immediate left here with uh, Paula McLean. Really honored to have her with us today. She is a professor of political science and a professor of law, public policy, and African and African American studies at Duke University. She is co-director of the Center for the Study of Race, Ethnicity, and Gender in the Social Sciences and directs the American Political Science Association's Ralph Bunch Summer Institute, hosted by Duke University and funded by the university and the National Science Foundation. She's a PhD from Howard, uh, Howard University. Her primary research interests are in racial minority group politics, particularly inter-minority political and social competition and urban politics, um, especially public policy and urban crime. Her articles have appeared in numerous journals. Uh, she, uh, this year, next year I guess, uh, Paradigm Press will publish her new book, American Government in Black and White, which is co-authored with Stephen Tauber. And Westview Press published uh, this year the fifth edition of her book, Can We All Get Along? Racial and Ethnic Minorities, pardon me, <coughs> Racial and Ethnic Minorities in American Politics, which she co-authored with Joseph Stork. Uh, welcome and a pleasure to have you here. Next to Paula is uh, uh, Bettina Wilkinson, who was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and moved to uh, New Orleans here along with her sister and parents when she was six years old. She was raised in New Orleans, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology and Spanish from Loyola University. She wrote her undergraduate thesis on Latino immigration in the U.S., and during her college years, she maintained close contact with the Latino population here by volunteering for the Hispanic Apostolate, a nonprofit community agency primarily focused on meeting a variety of the needs of the Latino community in the greater New Orleans area. After graduating from Loyola, she's continued to fulfill her interest in studying Latinos and immigration by attending LSU where she is pursuing a PhD in political science. She's in her last year of graduate studies there. And based on her interest in race and ethnic politics, public opinion, and political behavior, her dissertation focuses on what whites, blacks, and Latinos think of each other. And on the far left is uh, my friend from Los Angeles, Roberto Sudo, who is a professor at the Annenberg School uh, for Communication at the University of Southern California. He has nearly 35 years experience in the immigration field as a journalist, author, and researcher his specialties are the Hispanic population, U.S. immigration policy, and the dynamics of U.S. popular opinion regarding immigration. Prior to joining the USC faculty in uh, 2007, 
Uh, Roberto was the director of the Pew Hispanic Center, a research organization in Washington, D.C., which he founded in 2001 with support from the Pew, uh, Pew Charitable Trust. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, at the center, he supervised the production of more than 100 publications that offered nonpartisan statistical analysis and public opinion surveys, chronicling the rapid growth of the Latino population and its implications for the nation as a whole. He's the author of Strangers Among Us, Latino Lives in a Changing America, uh, Watching America's Door, the Immigration Backlash, Backlash and the New Policy Debate, and Remembering the American Dream, Hispanic Immigration and National Policy. So we've got a, a really fantastic group of panelists here with us this afternoon. And uh, again, at the end of the panel, there will be an opportunity for you to ask questions. So uh, please, please be prepared for that. Um, and we're going to have uh, a conversation. This isn't going to be a Q&A or very structured at all. Uh, I will get things started, though. Uh, and I'm going to get, I want to get this started with uh, just take a couple of minutes, just provide some, a little bit of a, of a backdrop and uh, uh, tells you a little bit about, as well, the sort of my area of interest in, as it relates to Mexican-Americans, specifically, um, and relationships with African-Americans. Um, <coughs> I stumbled upon myself in New Orleans. Uh, that's not a confession of a drunken fall. In the <laughs> uh, actually, I stumbled not upon myself, but upon someone with my name, who in his own way was also trying to figure out his relationship to the city. One day while researching the Mexican population in New Orleans, uh, I came across a newsletter online that reported on a study about the changing labor force in the city uh, after the hurricane. As the rebuilding process began, the federal government effectively encouraged the hiring of undocumented workers. As George Lopez jokes, FEMA stands for Find Every Mexican Available. <laughs> uh, New Orleans has never had a significant Latino population, as Ned Sublet uh, mentioned. Uh, in 2000, the Census Bureau set the city's Latino population here at just 4%. But in Katrina's, in Katrina's wake, Latinos looking for work poured in. They were primarily Mexican, but also Honduran, Salvadoran, and Nicaraguan. Uh, the estimates I have read, uh, a huge kind of range of estimates that I've read, but the highest range, the highest end of that, uh, is about 50,000, uh, 50, which would have um, effectively doubled the city's Latino population pre-Katrina. Anyway, accompanying the story in this newsletter was a photograph of a laborer leaning against a sidewalk newspaper rack on which he had propped a 16-ounce Budweiser. His white t-shirt was filthy, his baseball cap perched backward on his head, and the caption for the photo said, Oscar Garza relaxes after a long day of construction. <laughs> a sign hanging on a fence outside the market behind him touted the message, Poe Boy sold here. Rebuild the city for less than minimum wage? Yeah, I would say Poe Boys were being sold. <laughs> Not, given the past, city's past as a slave market, that's just tradition here. I don't know whether my namesake was undocumented or even if he's Mexican, but given the circumstances, those are safe bets. This much is certain. The influx of those Spanish-speaking laborers was only popular with the people who hired them to do backbreaking work for little money. Mayor Ray Nagan famously voiced concern about the city being overrun by Mexicans. Locals complained of being passed over for jobs, excuse me, in the rebuilding efforts. Others complained about loud Mexican music being played at construction sites and about taco trucks roaming the city. Imagine that, complaints in New Orleans about music and food. <laughs> but we're not here to single out New Orleans. Uh, oops, I'm sorry. We're not here to uh, single out New Orleans. Uh, with the Latino population growing in every part of the country, cities and communities throughout the nation are taking on new racial identities. Today in Los Angeles, there are ongoing tensions between Latinos and blacks. 
Traditionally black neighborhoods in South LA, such as Watts, have been taken over by Latino immigrants, and Mexican street gangs in various parts of the city have targeted blacks, oftentimes non-gang members, in attacks that have been labeled as hate crimes. Mexican and black gangs have often clashed, so much so that the LA County Sheriff has labeled it, quote, a serious interracial violence problem, with bands of blacks or Latinos roaming the streets looking for people of the other color to shoot, end quote. The tension continues to be revived and updated in a lot of different ways. Before the 2008 presidential election, there was much consternation and national media speculation over whether traditionally democratic Mexican-Americans in the Southwest could bring themselves to vote for a black man. During the Democratic primaries, a Latino pollster for Hillary Clinton even stated, quote, the Hispanic voter has not shown a lot of willingness or affinity to support black candidates, end quote. Such attitudes have deep roots, originating in the, in the 1519 discovery by the Spanish explorer Hernando Cortes of the land we now know as Mexico. Eventually, about 200,000 African slaves were brought to New Spain. By the end of the 18th century, approximately one-fourth of the population there was racially mixed, beginning with combinations of Spanish, Indian, and African, then evolving into myriad permutations of their offshoots. Uh, the miscegenation became so complex that 200 years after their arrival, the Spaniards commissioned artists to create an illustrated racial scorecard score to define and maintain social order in the New World. Known as Gasta paintings, each image depicted and labeled a father, mother, and their offspring by caste. The ideal was to maintain a dominant Spanish lineage. At the other end of the spectrum, introducing black blood in any coupling made for social pariahs. According to the woman who wrote the catalog for a museum exhibition of Gasta paintings, quote, in the estimation of the public, blacks were a lost people destined to remain slaves, and mixing with this group corrupted humankind. Slavery was abolished in Mexico in 1810, but it persevered in the northern territory of Texas. The United States annexed Texas in 1845 as a slave state, with many slave owners who were of Mexican descent. When Texas joined the Union, those Tejanos became the first Mexican Americans, and their attitude that blacks were inferior was handed down to subsequent generations. I was raised in the 1960s, like many other Mexican Americans throughout the Southwest, in a household that was mildly racist. It wasn't vile, rather the result of a dubious legacy found all over the world in which marginalized people degrade others who they believe are even more marginal. In my home, there was the occasional stereotypical joke, and my brothers teased that a black first-grade classmate of mine was, uh, was my girlfriend. Why would they taunt me so? Because in our home, just as in colonial Mexico, nothing could be more demeaning. So tension between blacks and Me Mexicans is an old two-way street. And we're here today to explore that history and see where that relationship might be headed. Uh, and so with that as a departure point, thank you all again for being here this afternoon. Uh, Paula, uh, let me, I want to ask you something to begin with, uh, to go to speak to uh, <coughs> contemporary history, American history a little bit, and the notion of competition between, uh, between blacks and, and, uh, and Mexicans in particular. Um, the African-American civil rights movement really was uh, sort of the blueprint for the, the Latino, Mexican-American civil rights movement in this country. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, was there competition set up as a result of that? Uh, or, or did Mexicans, I have seen some, some evidence that blacks and Mexican Latinos were pitted against each other a little bit in fight for federal funds, uh, that sort of thing, in the wake of civil rights legislation. Is that the root of, of, of any of, of of what's going on? 
I don't know whether you can identify it to one particular event or aspect. A lot of the competition has come about as a result of demographic change in various places. Um, some of it has to do with just the attitudes that you talked about historically, that where there might not be actual competition, in politics it's a perception, and if people perceive that these individuals are competitive or that I lost a job because you got a job, then it creates this, this particular tension. I think that what we're seeing is that a lot of the tensions that we see now might not necessarily be new. I just think as scholars and others and with the increases in immigration, they're beginning to come to the surface and people are beginning to talk about it and to think about it and actually to research exactly what this means and what the origins are. Well, there, there, uh, you recently uh, wrote a, uh, uh, an, uh, excuse me, an essay about these relationships um, and it <coughs> talked about blacks and, and Latinos often being lumped together as people of color and that there would be an assumption that we would have a lot in common. But you, you pointed out that that mutual designation uh, as being other than white it actually obscures more than it explains. And, and I love that phrase and I wanted to ask you to speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's um, one of the results of the, the demographic change that we've seen in the last 30 years with the growth of the Latino population, but also the growth of the Asian population and uh, the development of black middle and professional classes, um, is that there's, there's a much greater <coughs> variety in ways of being non-white in this country than there ever was before. I mean, there are more variations on other than whatever whiteness is. Um, and it, it, that designation of non-white, um, you know, it, it has become, it, it's, it's a bit too all-inclusive mm -hmm. to have a lot of meaning anymore, because uh, it covers too many people in too many different kinds of circumstances. Um, and, um, you know, that, so then lumping, anybody who's non-white uh, under the, the banner of people of color um, I, ends up, I think, it, it's, it's a designation that hasn't gotten a lot of traction um, for that reason among others. Um, and it's uh, within those communities you find both competition and cooperation, but it's, it's not based simply on, on race and color and, and um, the fact that they're not white. And, and how much is, of it is class-based as, as opposed to strictly, purely race-based? I guess if I understand, was that for yeah. Robert? Okay. Go ahead. I guess if what, what you're saying is that because a sizable portion of the black population are poor and a sizable portion of the Mexican-American population are poor, that therefore it's a class issue relative rather than... Yes a, a um, race issue. Well, one of the things that I say is that, and this is, this is keying off of, of Roberto's, is that the assumption in a lot of the literature has been that similarities in status means that one becomes more cooperative and coalitional. But similarities in status actually can lead to increased competition because you're both at the same, at the same point. So I don't see this kind of class-race distinction because I think it's an interactive effect. People might want to make the argument that it's either class or race, but I think it's an interaction for some people in these various groups of 
their class position and their race position. And Bettina, you've done some research uh, about those attitudes here in the wake uh, since, since the hurricane and since the population started to change a little bit. What have, what have you found in terms of those attitudes? Uh, well, in, in general, uh, I've seen where Latinos have a strong, looking at my uh, the Latino work that I've done, Latinos have a strong sense of uh, competition overall with African Americans and with whites. But um, overall, I found that um, just there is, like you were saying, class versus race. In general, I found that uh, individuals with a higher socioeconomic status, Latinos with a higher socioeconomic status, are less likely to perceive competition with African Americans. Um, and so in that sense, and in the focus groups that I've done, um, they, they constantly refer to the idea that um, it depends on class or individual's cultural level. And so, um, you know, to me in that sense, okay, that can say a lot of different things. Um, and when it comes to African Americans, I um, just, almost all of them said, no, there really isn't a competition. Um, and the individuals who would say, yes, there is some competition are individuals who have, who are more than likely to be of low socioeconomic status. So will have a, a lower education level or lower income overall. Uh, growing up in, in San Antonio, as I mentioned, and, and there's a case throughout the Southwest, the rubric there is really brown and white. You know, in, in San Antonio in particular, where I grew up, I think the black population was about eight or nine percent when I was growing up. Uh, and and Roberto, you, um, you spoke, of, you've written about uh, the notion of how communities around the country are changing, uh, and that in often cases, as is happening here with New Orleans, populations are for the first time in many, you know, being exposed to another ethnicity or another race in large numbers for the first time. And here, I guess it seems a little dramatic, although when you look at the sheer numbers, New Orleans is still overwhelmingly a black city, but I guess the, it's, it's the change in the Latino population has so, been so sudden and so striking that that has something to do with it as well. But talk a little bit about what's happening in communities around the country so that this is not an isolated thing that's happening here. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, there, there, are, there are places where blacks and Latinos have shared communities or been in the same cities for some time where there's there's been political competition and cooperation. Some, there's some history, there's some institutions, there's some familiarity. Um, but um, what's, what's a more widespread phenomenon in the last 10, 15, 20 years, uh, certainly all through the Southeast, um, is the, uh, the rapid growth of the Hispanic population from very small numbers, uh, or it was almost non-existent. Uh, growing at really phenomenal rates um, in Georgia, North Carolina, other parts of the South, scattered parts of Arkansas and Alabama, uh, often driven by very particular and very identifiable economic circumstances. Uh, and you, you can figure out why um, there are an awful lot of Latino workers in Dalton, Georgia, mm -hmm. um, and the, the changes in the structure of the labor force and the rug business drove it all there, or uh, in, in, uh, in parts of Arkansas where the poultry industry drew people. So there's, it tends to be very specific. But um, you, in these places, both, um, you know, all of the, the, the populations that were there before, both blacks and whites, are dealing with um, the speed of change rather than the size of change. So even if the Hispanic populations are still quite small, 
Um, it's the speed with which they've grown that is provoking a reaction. Uh, much of the, the local measures uh, to enact any uh, ordinances that would restrict immigration with, with uh, local ordinances, either with terms of landlords or employment or using local police to enforce immigration laws, tend to be in places that have seen not necessarily the largest growth uh, of an immigrant population. It's not in the New Yorks or Los Angeleses or Chicago's this is happening. Uh, it's tend to be in places where the immigrant population is still quite small, but it went from nothing to something so quickly that uh, it, it uh, attracted attention. More broadly, what you see in, in a lot of places, including in Los Angeles, um, is um, a, that African Americans overall um, are, have much more exposure residentially to Latinos than in the last 20 years than they have before, and that's grown substantially. Um, while um, segregation vis-a-vis -vis whites hasn't changed much, uh, the black sharing of communities with Latinos has, has grown notably uh, in many cities where Latinos have moved into what were poor or poor working class neighborhoods um, where African Americans were living. And, um, and that produces uh, another set of relationships. Paula, you live and work in, in one of those states I've seen. Yes. White in North Carolina, which has seen a huge influx of, of Latino immigrants. Is that your new case study? What have you, what have you observed living there and, and, and how things have developed in the last few years? Well, Durham is one of my cities in terms of my own academic work. Um, but we've noticed a number of things. Um, one of them has to do with just the quick increase and influx, that if you look at the census um, maps, 18, um, 1980, few Latinos, 1990, Latinos were, there weren't Latinos before, and then 2000, this, this explosion. And so what we have in North Carolina is a combination of not just the increasing population and the Latino immigrants moving into, at least in Durham, low-income, high-concentration poverty, black neighborhoods. But coupled with that, you have state responses that have really been, for the longest time, a non-response. And let me give you, give you an example. For the longest time, the state legislature of North, of, of North Carolina refused to allocate any money for uh, ESL or, or SOL, however, you know, um, for children that spoke Spanish. But the school districts still had to deal with this new population. So in the presence of not getting additional money from the state, school districts then had to reallocate extant resources. And so they set up a dynamic where black parents who had gotten services for their children through um, um, lobbying or whatever found their children now no longer having certain services. And so you get this perception that my child had services, you came, my child no longer has services. Therefore, it's you, okay, as opposed to the state legislature. Now, the thing about it is that in reality, it's the state legislature. But what we know is that it's perceptions in politics that matters. And the perception is that I had stuff, you came, I no longer have that stuff, therefore, you're not good for me. Okay, and that kind of dynamic um, 
even let me just give you, you know, a small example. Um, because I put my, my team, we got on, this, on a city bus and just kind of rode around Durham before we were in the field with the survey so we could get a sense for when the survey firm is calling these households, what kind of dynamic there might be on the street. And so the bus situation was really kind of tense. It was kind of all black and then, you know, um, my white graduate students and then some Latino housekeepers got on. The tension in the bus just, you know, really tensed up and then they got off and then people people kind of calmed down again. So we were, in the, we were finding that, boy, there's just something going on here. That when the survey firm was talking to folks, there's this underlying dynamic that we're not going to be able to pick up in the survey responses, but that we see basically on the ground. Um, maybe you can all speak a little bit to this, which is that you know, what's happening in North Carolina, as you spoke, um, represents now a generation, probably, of Latinos living there. Um, at first, what typically happens is laborers move to a city almost exclusively at the beginning, all men. And then at some point, they decide if they want to remain there, they will stay there, they will send for their families, somehow get their families there. And so you're starting to see that happening and its impact on schools and, and public, other public services. I suspect here in New Orleans, you know, right now we're still at that point where it's just primarily laborers, primarily men. Um, but what kind of how long will it be before you can you will start noticing? Hmm, maybe this is a permanent thing where they're putting down roots. Uh, the kids are you know they brought their families here. Their kids are starting to go to school. Is there is there a it's timeline? Absolutely, totally predictable. Yeah, I mean if you're seeing a substantial increase in young Hispanic male workers here, you have to start planning for. Um, expanding your kindergarten classes and hiring ESL teachers um, in seven to ten years. I mean it happens like clockwork. It's happened I mean so many other places where um, the arrival of um, the uh, of Hispanic immigrant workers came on a, uh, on a wave of economic prosperity many places in the late 1990s, um, they were quite welcomed in the midst of, of, of boom times when there was almost negative unemployment. Um, and um, a growth of, of ready male workers working very inexpensively um, has very little cost um, to, the, to, to public services and uh, in general. And as you said, it's totally Predictable. I mean, you don't. If there are very few places where you find disproportionate populations by gender that are stable. And there, there, there are a couple of cities in the United States that are anomalous, but there aren't. There aren't many. I mean, it's interesting in California, San Diego and San Francisco, for different reasons, have have larger male populations than you would normally find in an American city. <coughs> Women come. And five years later, they you have children enrolling in schools. And there are so many places that were, where the, the pattern was encourage economic growth uh, with property tax abatements for yuppie industries in particular, with the notion that you're just getting sort of um, a, upscale whites who have no, who aren't going to produce a lot of children. Um, and with them came a growth uh, of an immigrant 
migrant population. It's happened in North Carolina, it happened in the suburbs of Washington, lots of places where you had high-tech or banking industries. Um, and all of a sudden, there people you have county governments passing bond resolutions um, to expand elementary schools. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's the trailers and the parking lots outside the elementary schools. You can as soon as those trailers go up, you know it's been about seven to ten years since that wave of, of immigrant workers. And have there been instances where uh, a city or a community saw an influx of laborers, but it didn't take hold and didn't become a permanent part of the population? Well, I mean, we're in, maybe, yeah. because we're in a really, in a, in a very, you know, in a, in a unusual and difficult moment in the U.S. economy now. And one of the things that we're seeing um, is a, since starting in 2006, a really dramatic fall off in the inflow. Um, in fact, if you had... Uh, the flow of Mexican workers in the United States was, in the last three business cycles, a great leading indicator uh, of both the upside and the downside of the cycle. Uh, and if you had sold when, in proportion to the drop-off and the arrival of Mexican workers, you know, I promise you your retirements would be in much better shape than they probably are now. It's amazing how sensitive it is. Um, and the result is that now, for the first time, we're seeing what might be an actual reduction um, in the size of the immigrant population. Nobody knows for sure, but the, the, the statistics are starting to indicate that. People may be going back. They're certainly not coming the way they did. So the pattern that we saw in the up cycle in the 1990s and in the ups was that people came and they stayed, and they wrote out that the recession at the beginning of, of this decade, it's not clear how people are riding out this recession and whether the, the populations that grew in the up cycle in the 1990s and then the up cycle in the first part of this decade are, is, are durable enough to withstand unemployment the way it is in, in the duration and, and depth that it is now. So we'll see. There may be places where this gets reversed, and this could be one of them. I mean, New Orleans could be a place that, as a result of the, the business cycle, the, the move of immigrants after, uh, in the last five years here, is, is less permanent, perhaps, than it might have been otherwise. Bettina, and some of the, and a little bit of the research that you've done, that you did some focus groups and field work, I believe, here in New Orleans, did you see exclusively men, laborers? Did you see any evidence that there were women or families now being are already part of the, of the mix here? Yeah, I mean, overall, um, you know, I'm from here and I come here on a regular basis too on the weekends and stuff since I live alone in Baton Rouge. And I, uh, a, a large group have been just men that I've seen, but also there's a large number of women, um, you know, families that come in along with these workers as well. And so, um, constantly throughout the, uh, the focus groups that I've done, people, um, you know, just say kind of under their breath, well, if there's work here, we're going to stay. If there isn't work, well, you know, then we'll go. And some people have started to leave because they're, you know, just jobs are closing up, but then some new jobs may be coming in later on. One guy said, well, I hope another hurricane comes because then we have more work. You know, just kind of under his breath in a way because that's good for him, you know. And so, so in general, but um, just one thing. That doesn't help.
just one thing I wanted to say before I forgot, Polly, you mentioned, you know, that tension, and, you know, we've been talking about that overall. And um, so in the studies that I've done, people um, say, um, no, you know, uh, there's no there's no competition. But one African-American said, uh, and this will never leave me, he said, well, I've noticed they're taking, they're taking what we've been trying to get all along. And I thought to myself, wow, that was really powerful. So what does that mean? And I said, well, elaborate a little bit. What do you mean? It's like, well, the recognition from whites, you know, to, uh, to that we are to the same level as they are, that, you know, we are educated, that we are hard workers. You know, that just kind of stayed with me because, it, you know, bringing the whole dynamics of the three groups coming together and who's on top of whom and who's, you know. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Uh, how? How might, I mean, you, you've done a lot of work on immigration and immigration policy as well. Can you tell, do you have a sense of what, what might happen with the nation's immigration policy? And, and, uh, and, and well, you know people in Washington, you know what's being spoken about and perhaps proposed sooner or later, and how that might affect what we're seeing happening. Well, um... Do you think there will be immigration reform in the first term of, of Someday. <laughs> um, I, um, I, you know, today, you ask me right now, um, I, it's been growing less and less likely every day. Uh, in part, if you just see how the healthcare debate has unfolded um, and the amount of the time that's been consumed, uh, it's really not happening before the midterm election. <laughs> Um, and, and much will, much I think it will be, really will depend on what happens um, after. Uh, I mean, there was um, everybody. You know, there's an agreement on what a bill would look like and what the vacancy architecture um, would be, and uh, it, it's a little bit different than what was debated in 2007. More modest and more staggered. Um, but I think it's, it's, it seems unlikely. I mean, one of the options is to do things in pieces. Um, the, uh, the administration has um, continued pressing enforcement measures less, less dramatically um, than the Bush administration was doing in terms of um, big dramatic raids where they bring in 20 buses and, and, and take 400 people off at a time. They're doing paperwork raids where people just lose, lose their jobs, but aren't, and it doesn't happen quite as, as dramatically. Um, and the move to, um, to, to uh, in, improve work site enforcement um, and to create the, the E-Verify system where uh, employers can electronically check whether somebody is authorized to work or not um, I think is, is likely to move forward. It's moving forward in, in bits and pieces. I mean, they're building the system. They've extended it to federal contractors. It, it's, gonna, it's becoming a fait accompli. You know, the logic of it is supposed to be showing we can do enforcement, showing we can, that it's possible to have a regime that works, so therefore you can do more generous measures. But um, I, I think it's going to be a long time coming. Um, and um, you know, one of the interesting, I mean, going back to our topics, one of the interesting questions is going to be how 
um, African American political leaders mm -hmm. view this question. Um, they kind of got a pass in the last in the debates of 2006-2007. Sat them out, having been uh, prominently on the side of generous measures in the 1980s and previous debates. Um, it'll be interesting to see where um, where what happens next in terms of, of black political and public opinion on this issue. Um, is one of the ways these two populations are very different now is that uh, African Americans have been gaining politically in, in their presence in, 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 in political arenas locally and of course nationally now very substantially over the last 30 or 40 years. Meanwhile, the Hispanic population has become less enfranchised at, with the growth of the undocumented mm -hmm. population. Um, you now have a population that has less political clout per capita um, than at any time in its history and it, it is losing political power to a certain extent um, in, 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 when you see the population as a whole. Uh, and the issue of political, of civic connectedness it has become one of the really a color line um, for Hispanics in a way that's not for African Americans now. Uh, while it very much used to be a very important line for African Americans. Paul, are there other cities that are, you know, where the dynamic is at a different place than it is here, where, where you're seeing some, you know, interesting dynamics going on, but, you know, where it's been going on for a little bit longer? I mean, you said Durham probably about the last 15 years or so, you think? Right. Are there other cities that have, that are in the, sort of that same place in terms of population changes and where you're starting to see now the second generation of Latino families in a new place? What I think a lot, of, a lot of, well, there's three cities in my study, um, my work, and that's Durham, Memphis, and Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas. And we chose those cities specifically because in Durham, blacks and whites are in equal proportion to each other. Um, Memphis is a majority black city, and Little Rock is a city where blacks are still in a minority. Each one has a different civil rights history. We all kind of know about Little Rock in terms of, of the um, Central High School. Memphis has, I mean, it was where Dr. King was, was assassinated, but it has this long hundreds of years history of issues of race and lynching and a whole host of things. And so what we're trying to figure out is whether or not city context and population dynamics creates a different set of relationships between blacks, whites, and Latinos that will give us some sense of what we might see in the future. Um, so that in a place like Memphis, which is a majority black city where blacks have political power, Blacks, at least in our survey data, seem to feel that their relationship with Latinos and whites is just fine. But Latinos and whites think it's horrible and have very negative attitudes on the parts of minority whites now in Memphis and minority Latinos towards the majority black population. In Durham, we've actually seen a shift from 2003 to 2007, where in 2003, whites in Durham weren't concerned about immigration at all. By 2007, they're very concerned about issues of immigration. And on issues of stereotypes, where we thought we would find high levels of stereotypes 
about blacks among the white population, we found very minimal stereotypes. But among Latino immigrants, negative stereotypes on the part, you know, their view of blacks is just phenomenal. One of the, the interesting, which we couldn't figure out, in Memphis and Little Rock, when you ask the Latino immigrants, it's a question on whether or not blacks um, use uh, are on welfare or use public services. 90% of Latino immigrants in Memphis and Little Rock say almost all or all blacks are on welfare. Now, in Memphis, they're in a majority black city. You would think that there would be objective or empirical information that would say that that's not the case. But from their perception, probably based on the people that they interact with and their own issues or attitudes about race from their sending countries puts them in this particular frame. I remember something that Paula just said reminded me of, again, to go back to that essay you'd written about black and brown relations, about the way they saw each other and how there was, there was uh, part of what you'd written about was a study where blacks and black attitudes about how they perceive their relationships with Latinos tended to be more positive than the way Latinos right. saw their relationships to blacks. Right. Yeah, right. no, that, that's exactly right. Um, and, 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 and that was, and, and was that sort of a cross-economic, uh, socioeconomic line? Yeah, I mean, you, this was at a, a, a national survey, and I don't, I don't recall seeing breakdowns within the groups by by um, <coughs> by economic status. But but generally, um, you're right that African Americans. Um, See, believe, have a more favorable attitude toward Latinos and have a better perce perceive the relations between the two groups as being more positive than, than Latinos do. Um, the flip side of that is that when you ask about um, experience of dis discrimination and relations with whites, um, African-American views are more negative mm -hmm. than, than uh, Latinos are and there's more and there's a greater perception of discrimination. And some of that, maybe a little, little piece of it, but somewhere along the line, it has to have something to do as well with the fact that for a long time, Latinos in this country, Mexicans, by the government were considered white. For census purposes, <coughs> racially Mexicans or Latinos were considered racially white. And, and, and so I've seen some research that speaks to that you know, that also sort of, you, you pick up attitudes from that as well. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there are probably a couple of things there. One, uh, on the one side, you've got um, a large immigrant population whose attitudes towards things American tends to be quite positive. I mean, that, you know, they, they, they chose to come here. Um, and um, and, um, and interestingly, among Latinos, the, the, the native-born population has a more negative attitude towards American institutions than the, mm -hmm. the, the immigrant population does. Um, and, um, and the other thing is, is perceptions of race among Latinos themselves, which you know, it, it's, um, it tend to be complicated as you describe, you're talking about people who come from societies um, with very complicated gradations of race and very and, and by no means colorblind. Um, but what you get here, you know, the census now 
uh, in 2000 and will again in 2010, offers a great variety of, of ways of describing your race. Um, aside from, from the old standard four categories that we that used to be. Um, but one that didn't of them. changed until 1990, right? That, right. That and they keep adding yeah. variations because now you can be one of, you can have more than one race and you can, you know, so it, it, it's, it's now become quite a lengthy question with a lot of options. Reflecting the reality of, uh, of the country and the reality of the way people see themselves. One of the options is just, is the, the, the kind of none of the above, which is just some other race. You literally have got all these different options you know, on this form. And at the bottom it just says some other race. Like nothing fits. Um, about 40, 44% of Latinos mark some other race. Uh, the other large group mark white. Um, and they tend to have different characteristics. Um, and Latinos who, who describe themselves as white tend to more likely to be native born, more likely to be better educated, more likely to be English speakers. Um, among foreign-born, they're more likely to be citizens than recently arrived. Um, so it appears that whiteness has uh, has a meaning. I mean, it, it, it logically mm -hmm. would um, that that Latinos here have ingested and applied to themselves. Um, Paula. Um where, where is your work taking you next in terms of, your, are you focusing mostly on those three cities right now or that was a particular study? Um... No, we're focusing on, um, Durham was our original city in 2003 and then we resurveyed Durham, picked up Memphis and picked up Little Rock and we're in the process of trying to analyze um, those data. If in fact we find different patterns of relationships and attitudes, it might tell us that certain southern cities that look this way may have this particular set of relationships and other southern cities that look this way demographically and professionally or whatever may have a different set of, of dynamics. So what we're trying to identify is to, not that there'll be this one set of relationships that might exist in these various southern locations, but context in which people live in different cities might produce different patterns. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's just a sense of trying to figure out where we're going to be politically and socially in the South in the future. And there doesn't seem to be any, I mean, you said there are fewer, there have been fewer immigrants coming into here. We joke in Los Angeles that even in Los Angeles, there are fewer immigrants that have been, and it's sort of like, well, they figured out it's a terrible place to live. It's crowded, it's dirty. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what, other, what other cities are seeing this kind of dramatic change. I mean, what going to call anyone here? Oh my goodness. Well, there's... there's Literally, the, the South has been yeah. the biggest growth just as, in general, right, for immigration. It is, in fact, the second... I mean, the Southwest clearly has the largest number of Latinos, but the South is number two. I mean, now there's a large gap in terms of the percentage. Um, but in North Carolina, I mean, you have smaller communities like Siler City, um, the city of Durham, Charlotte, um, in South Carolina, there's Greenville, uh, Atlanta. It's not Atlanta proper. It's the counties. Oh. 
counties around, I mean, parts of Georgia, I mean, Alabama, I mean, so it's, it's um, Roberto mentioned Dalton. Dalton, we wanted to be one of our cities because this is one city in the South where in 1990, Latinos were something like 4% of the population and blacks were like nine. Now Latinos are something like 41% of the population. And so this is where this population overwhelmed the indigenous black population. But the size, the city size wasn't large enough for, for, the, for the survey firm to draw, to draw us up. Because what we wanted to see was, okay, when blacks are replaced, right. basically, you know. What drove the growth in Dalton? What's the rug? The rug. Rust. It's the rug capital of the, of the world. world. The wall-to-wall -wall yeah. carpet. Not rugs, carpet. The carpet, yeah. That's yeah. astounding. Yeah. And there was a, just a, a fundamental restructuring of the labor force in that industry. I mean, basically, the industry shifted from native-born African-American mm -hmm. workers uh, and poor whites to uh, immigrant Mexicans. And it's become a permanent part of the population. Yeah, it's yeah. very. Yeah. I would say just overall, just in ro many rural areas, there's. I've been reading just in certain areas in Iowa or Washington State and Nevada. You know that have been increasing the number as well. Yeah, yeah I mean you can. You know the meat packing industry, yeah. in the upper yeah. Midwest, um, the big expansion cities in the Intermountain West. Uh, parts of the Northeast in the high-tech corridors, um, the Washington D.C. metro areas. Um, you know, is it's one of Washington's an interesting example of a place where you had a you you've got a, a, a the core city is predominantly African American mm -hmm. and, and retains a very African American identity and a political culture, um, and the Hispanic population initially moved into the city, but subsequently has moved into the suburbs. And it's now more intermingling with whites and with, with African Americans. Um, they move to where the jobs are. Um, and um, much to the disadvantage of, of African Americans um, competing for jobs in the white suburbs of um, of the Washington area, a little bit of seeing some of the same thing in Atlanta, where it's it's in the suburbs mm -hmm. of Atlanta where there where the job growth was um, that Hispanics moved in um, at a time when there's an expansion of the workforce that didn't benefit the African American mm -hmm. population in the city. And it's funny how sometimes the communities can get pitted against each other somewhat inadvertently. I heard a report this week on NPR about how um, a group of Latino small farmers have been trying to sue the Department of Agriculture. I think the Department of Agriculture for many, many years has had the small loan programs mm -hmm. for small farmers throughout the country. Uh, but the, the loan programs are administered locally uh, by, I guess I don't know how they're appointed, but small groups of people appoint, are appointed to review these loan applications. Uh, I'm not sure how long ago, but black farmers right. in this country were able sue. to sue and were able to uh, file a class action suit against the Department of Agriculture for discrimination uh, in the loan practices of the Department of Agriculture. <laughs> Latino farmers have been trying to do the same thing, and so far the courts have not allowed them to, uh, to, seek, as a, to, to seek redress as a class action. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
And so, you know, the enemy here, they have a common enemy, but yet, in a weird way, it's once again, you know, a community sort of, it's sort of like the Latino farmers are like, well, why have the black farmers been given this privilege you know, to, to file suit as a class that we have? Well, I'm not sure. I think, I, I think it's, it's, it's the National Association of Black Farmers that was formed in, in I mean, for this purpose to, to, to sue in, in early 2000. I'm not sure that they would consider it a privilege. I mean, they worked, I mean, and they thought, and they pushed, you know, to get these, because their grievances go back decades, you know, in terms of what the agriculture department um, was doing to them. And so they organized and they formed and they kind of, you know, pushed in the courts to, to kind of get this. And there may be kind of a regional difference. I'm not sure where these Latino farmers are. Probably primarily in Texas. Right, because the National Black Farmers Association are black belt farmers, all in the old states, um, states of the old Confederacy, you know. And this local control, um, one of the things that Southern congressmen and senators were able to do for a lot of the New Deal legislation um, to get them to buy on, they knew that there would be black vets and, and, and all these other things, is that, yeah, we'll pass the legislation, but it's got to be locally administered. And so that's exactly why black farmers and veterans and everybody were not able to get home loans or farm loans or whatever, because the local administrators essentially enforced segregation yeah. and discrimination and in the process. And the farmers the same way in Texas, mm -hmm. essentially. Like this guy was talking about how you know, you just could not get a loan. Then you get a loan, but it was after the growing season. Right. So it's like, did it no good. All right, uh, are there questions out there for anybody on our panel? Yes, ma'am, up here in front. We're gonna bring you a mic, and if you would please stand and say your name, if you would. Thank you. My name is Mondale, and I'd just like to share an observation about New Orleans as it relates to uh, the Hispanic population since Katrina. Uh, but before I say that, I'd like to acknowledge that prior to Katrina, New Orleans had the highest concentration of people from Honduras living here than any other city in the United States, uh, in particular in the mid-city area. What I've noticed uh, as it relates to what's going on now is that initially a lot of uh, undocumented workers were uh, sort of bust in or brought in to do all of the hard labor and what have you. And many of them lived out in uh, Jefferson, especially around the uh, area, which is not far from the 17th Street Canal. There are a lot of apartment complexes and what have you. And they lived uh, out among, them, you know, a lot of uh, Hispanic and a few blacks uh, and whites. And uh, as soon as the work that was needed was completed, there were uh, immigration officers rounding these people up and uh, arresting them. So what happened, a lot of them moved in, migrated into New Orleans and are living in the uptown areas of New Orleans in Central City and Broadmoor and some other uh, surrounding areas. If you go off of the Claiborne overpass uh, around um, Martin Luther King, you see a lot of day workers, but many of them have now brought women and the young women are having babies. And I was talking to uh, someone from the health department and a lot of uh, uh, Latino babies are being born down here in New Orleans. And I think that the, uh, there's not friction among so much the construction workers, but the hotel industry, which was seen, the service industry was seen as a predominantly black uh, uh, employment mechan mechanism. 
And a lot of the Hispanic employees have been hired and replaced some of the blacks. So you have a little friction there. But I don't see that the uh, construction workers are having a problem with each other. That's just my observation. Thank you. Hi, my name is Juan Cruz. I want to add a point to that. After the hotels started reopening after the storm, they, what's, what's that one H or H1? What is that? Uh, H1 visa? H1, H1 no, 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 it's, 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 that's the flu. It's, it's, folks were brought from Latin America. Folks were literally recruited in Latin America, brought here on a H1 visa. H1 visa and brought, and the hotels brought these folks in from Latin America to do these jobs. We, I've heard them speaking and talking, talking to them. They said that they were working in these hotels and some people from FEMA, FEMA's putting people up from New Orleans there. These same ladies that worked in these hotels are sitting in, in there being, you know, in the female rooms, and this, this is their jobs. And these other people have gotten their jobs, and it was like, wait a minute. They were told, the Latin Americans were told this, these were like these great jobs in the, in, the, in the hospitality industry, and they ended up being, you know, maids and, you know, doing all busboys and all that. And it was like, they're cheaper than the folks that were here before. Mm -hmm. and, and it ain't like they decided to, to do that, you know? I just want to make clear that people, the hotel industry in this, in this city is one of the most powerful industries in this city. The hotels in this city are cash cows for the chains for the rest of this country. Uh, this is one of the few cities that doesn't have unionized workers in the hotels. There's only like one or two hotels, Lowe's and I think the Fairmont. What's it called now? Roosevelt. Yeah, I think it's still unionized, right? Is it still union? I don't know. It's just Lowe's. Huh? Just Lowe's now? Okay. So that's, that's one of the major issues here is that that... You know, they broke the unions in the, in the 70s and stuff, and now, now we're like stuck with this. I just want to make that point. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Hi, I'm Ilana. Uh, I have a question for you in terms of your study that you're doing in the three cities. Um, one of the things that uh, is happening in here, and I think throughout the South, is the big question is, is the dynamic is going to change, the black and white dynamic? Uh, in the South that's so strong because of the history. And that's one question that in New Orleans is coming out a lot, is with this new influx of immigrants, is that going to have any kind of impact in terms of the dynamic, the black and brown, uh, black and white dynamic in here in the South? So my, my question for you is, did you, did you notice in your study that there was some uh, political implications of the change, or it's too early to tell? Well. It's too early to tell about political implications in the sense of what difference the Latino immigrant population is going to make politically, because you have to be a citizen in order to vote. And so politicians um, are not going to, they're going to pay attention to this population as it relates to their other constituents who are concerned about the population. But a lot of the politicians are not necessarily concerned about the issues related to this population because they're not full constituents yet. So in that sense, whether or not we're going to see um, that political change. But if these populations stay and become citizens, based on what we've asked in terms of 
you know, what political party do you think you identify with most? At least in our three cities, it seems to be the Democrats. Now, maybe if you're kind of thinking along the way that maybe the Latino population may in fact be a nice lifesaver for Democratic candidates in southern jurisdictions where in fact they haven't been able to, to get many votes because of the Republican nature um, of the situation. But the other aspect of politically is that there is a tremendous backlash against immigration and immigrants, not just among white Southerners, but among black Southerners as well. And so it's, there's a possibility that whites and blacks who might have been at odds on certain policy issues may in fact find common ground on issues of immigration. And that would be a very different dynamic in the South. Right, right, where blacks and whites actually in the South come closer together on this particular issue. Yes, yes. I have a question to your right here in the back. Hi, my name is Marquita. I have a question related to that. It seems to me that the myth or reality of the black-brown conflict um, seems to be a tool that has been used for structural racism and um, a lot of the economic exploitation of both of those communities is kind of being pushed to the side and you have this kind of cultural dynamic that's put to the forefront um, and there doesn't seem to be as much um, mainstream awareness about the issues of economic exploitation in these communities, whether it's labor trafficking or unfair business practices or things that really affect the like day-to-day -day lives of these two communities. And it seems to be that um, it's hypersensitized into this black-brown concept. And so do you guys agree with that or do you see that as a foundation for addressing these larger economic issues? to deal with this first on the cultural and kind of social political level? Well, I think that argument that it's these larger forces of exploitation that create this dynamic is one that those of us in this room make and understand. But when you talk to people in their day-to-day -day lives who are looking for a place to live, who are looking for a job, that kind of argument is at a level that's not at the level where most people are. And what most people are, it's the perception. I had a job, you came, I no longer had a job. My children had services in school, you came, my kids no longer had a job. We had a hospital in this county, you came, you had babies, you bankrupt the hospital, now the hospital is closed. Okay, those are very, for people, there are very real experiences that the kind of argument that we might make about the larger exploitation is not the argument that these individuals see in their daily lives. You know, and it's the perception, and that, that's kind of the dynamic. So it's not a myth about black-brown conflict. There's a reality. In certain areas, over certain things, there is this conflict. Is it generalized across all of the country? No. But for activists who work in these communities, they make a very big mistake to not 
recognize that for people in these communities, <laughs> there is a sense that I am losing out, that you're gaining at my expense. We have a question to your left over here. Uh, yes, my name is Jim Jamie. Uh, I'm a graduate student at LSU. And I have a question. I know so, you know, when we always talk about black brown relationships, Latinos, blacks, whites, it's always these clear cut categories. Mm -hmm. In New Orleans, however, I'm doing research with Hispanics and migration, immigration to the city in the South. And I noticed that there's a lot of Garifuna in the city, it has a sizable population of Garifuna, which is an, uh, a black his, uh, Hispanic group from the coast of Honduras. How is that being addressed? Because I've done a lot of interviews with them, and I found it interesting of how they identify themselves as not as black in the city, as, as receiving racism from, from uh, black Americans in New Orleans. How is that being addressed? Is it being looked at in New Orleans? Has anybody, um, when, you, when you're looking at these relationships with black and brown, is this being looked at as well? I was going to say, as far as I know, no, not really. I mean, just because of data accessibility to the numbers that you would want to get to be representative of the population, it, as far as I know, it hasn't been looked at. Uh, but I think it's a very important and interesting dynamic that is going on here in New Orleans where you have individuals who um, are are like that, who identify either as African American or as Latino or as both, what is going on with them and how they respond to other individuals who look like them, who look uh, they do. So I don't know if maybe yeah. you all would know, but as far as I know, no. Not in, not in, not in New Orleans, but there is um, a historian at John Hopkins, Ben Vinson, who is looking at the black Mexican immigrant population that's come into Winston-Salem, okay, that they have a different, I mean, they're coming from the same Mexican states as the other Latino Mexican immigrants, but they're going to a different destination. And so Winston-Salem has the largest black Mexican population in North Carolina, and he's written on that. He's got a new book coming out that's supposed to be out already called Afro-Mexico, but that's where he's looking at blacks in Mexico, and I think he's then kind of tracing their route into North Carolina. Is he, is he looking at I don't know, because the, that book is not out. I know his other work is, is, um, has something to do with identity. But you might want to look at his work. It's V-I-N-S-O-N, Ben, Vincent. And for those of you who don't know, just to pick up on what Paul just said, in Mexico, in the state of Veracruz, which is mm -hmm. where Cortez landed and where slave entree was in Mexico, there remain towns and villages that are completely black. Mm -hmm. They're African culture. That's what those towns are, and that's where the most black Mexicans live. Okay, I'm Joachim Singleman from LSU. Uh, my question sort of a remark dovetails on what the gentleman just said before. <coughs> I think that the uh, meaning of categories is very important. Uh, looking at New Orleans, uh, for the longest here, really, the uh, importance of the black establishment was a Creole black establishment. And if you read novels by Ernest Gates <coughs> and so on, I, you know. This is very important from outside, from up north, it looks like it's black down here, but uh, it is in many, many ways Creole. And so know, knowing that, I think it's even more important uh, for the Hispanic category. I mean, Hispanics are Latinos, they are uh, Cubans, they are Puerto Ricans, they are Dominicans. In many ways, they have very little in common with one another. And if you then put look at uh, differences in, in, in inter interracial marriage rates, uh, about 35% um, of second generation Hispanics marry non-Hispanics. 
for blacks it's 6%. So that here you have one fairly homogeneous category, African Americans, and then you have this very dispersed category. And so I think the relation between blacks and, again using the term Hispanics, differs by, could differ by these demographic characteristics that you mentioned in those three cities, but it also could very much differ by the origin of the Hispanic population now. Yes, we ask origin of the group so that we're able to, in the data analysis, to differentiate, differentiate the, different, the different groups. And I just want to just take note sometimes just as an observation when it comes to surveys or just in general, what does it really mean to be Hispanic? What does it mean to be African-American? Is it based on, you know, skin color so much? Like, for example, my sister, who is also from Argentina as me, I identify as Latina when I fill out a census. She identifies as white. We come from the same mother. We were born in the same country. Okay, so what is it? What are we, you know? But then when it comes down to legislation and stuff, it matters. Um, so I don't know. A question to your right. Hi, I'm Amy Stuckey from Tulane. Um, I actually lived in Durham for two years um, during a very tense time, actually during the Duke Lacrosse case. Um, and I just want to ask a question. You talk about these perceptions among the Latino community and African American community, and how do you go about addressing those perceptions within the community to kind of solve the issue? I mean, we've been talking a lot about the problems between the two you know, groups. How do you go about changing those perceptions within the community? The The best examples of successful cooperation that, that I've seen tend to be when communities organize around specific issues. Um, and where a common interest um, in, uh, in schools or in an environmental issue or in a criminal justice issue uh, supersedes group identity. Um, that often takes a, a certain quality of leadership um, to say, you know, we, to, the only way we're going to solve this problem is if we, if we join together on it. Um, but when the focus shifts from groups to issues, um, it, it seems to be the circumstances that, that I've seen where, where these tensions tend to uh, dissipate. We have a question here in the center. Hi, um, my name is Annie Gibson. Um, I have a comment and a question. My first comment, um, when we're thinking about race in New Orleans and talking about categories is to, to remember that um, in New Orleans we've also had a very large Brazilian immigrant community that has come to the city and complicates our understandings of, of race and categories a lot. Um, and so as people start doing future research to think about that. Um, and my comment, or my question is for Patina. I was wondering if you, in your research you've done any work in the rural communities in Louisiana or things outside of New Orleans? As of yet, no, and honestly, it comes down to money. I'm a graduate student in my last year, and I think the more, you know, um, just the, the, the more um, study that you conduct, the more uh, ability, you know, you would be able to apply for NSF grants, various grants, so as of right now, no. Um, Do you have any explain. sort of feeling in general about what, what the, how big the, the influx of Latinos has been in areas in other regions in the, in the Gulf South? Yeah, I've heard that um, in certain areas in, uh, uh, in the middle, close to Alexandria, certain areas, rural areas in Louisiana, there have been some um, 
some large groups in the Hispanic population. Mississippi um, overall, I would say no, but I mean, I'm sure that you know, with the uh, you know re rebuilding and reconstruction, there have been a large number of uh, Latinos who have gone to the uh, the Biloxi Gulf Shores Gulfport area, you know, to rebuild. But specific numbers, no. Where the jobs are, <laughs> as of right now, and if they will continue, then yes. Another question to your right. How you doing? My name is uh, Dietrich Kelly. Um, I actually had an opportunity to conduct research uh, a couple years ago you know, when I was in Los Angeles for my uh, doctoral program. Uh, one of the issues that I came up with was uh, the fact that a lot of the racial issues that we're having right now is going to explode. Uh, I actually call it paper racial flood because of the fact that a lot of the issues culminated from, uh, like from Mexico or uh, certain areas on the west coast of Mexico. And looking at, like for example, in Los Angeles, uh, big issues there, a lot of racial, I think you asserted to it earlier, that uh, where a lot of African-Americans <coughs> as well as Mexican-Americans or Mexicans are, are targeting African-Americans or each other. And you look at like Houston, where uh, you look at, you go even further, where they had a uh, gentleman who was uh, Panamanian descent and looked like myself, spoke Spanish fluent and everything. He was running for, I think, councilman. And the people in the community Mexicans uh, in the community basically said he wasn't uh, Hispanic enough. And we look at Cuba down in the uh, Miami area where it's predominantly Cuban and you see the same uh, issues. And whereas you go up to New York City where you see a lot of uh, uh, Puerto Rican, uh, a lot of Puerto Ricans there, um, the issues that you see there is the fact that they don't want to class themselves as uh, Cuban or being seen as Mexican whereas the other groups would say we're Latinos, no one would say Hispanics. So I think a lot of what I'm getting to in a nutshell is that the issue is that uh, the unity between the groups is not there. And what I do see is in the future that you're gonna have a, uh, a large uh, disparity, what we saw in the 60s. It's gonna be where Latinos against the African-Americans. I'm talking about the fact that discrimination as well as violence. I, I'd like to go back to the issue of violence, which Oscar raised um, early on, and, um, and say two things about it. One, this is in Los Angeles, it's not a new story. Um, and the predictions of, of all-out war between Latinos and blacks in the streets of Los Angeles are, sort of, are, are kind of a recurring theme. But beyond that, um, when you look First of all, it's very easy to overstate the extent of violence between blacks and Latinos in Los Angeles or anywhere else. I mean, almost everywhere in the country, um, <coughs> murders over, well, 90% or more of murders are committed within the same racial group. Um, but beyond that, there, there is real friction among young males um, on the streets of Los Angeles and other cities, and it's attributable to very clear and explicit public policies of incarceration. Um, when you lock up large proportions of your population, aged 18 to 25, in massively overcrowded prisons, um, as has happened in California and the rest of the country, um, with mandatory sentencing, um, the results are utterly predictable. Um, and in California, you have pr a prison system that's been operating uh, sometimes at 200% of capacity 
uh, where you have people stacked up in gymnasiums um, in, in bunk beds that are four or five high. Um, and um, to not expect that human beings, particularly young males, warehoused under those conditions will remain unviolent is absurd. Um, and to not think that the most primal and tribal instincts that people have won't emerge under those circumstances is absurd. And not to think that that's not going to transfer into your cities uh, eventually is equally absurd. But so this is, people wring their hands over this. And the answer, when there are outbursts um, of this kind of criminal violence, um, the, the basic response is to then round more people up and send them to prison. And, and then you wonder why the sheriff of Los Angeles County pulls his hair out over this, you know, sends more people into the prison system, you know, has to put it entirely on lockdown. I mean, there are prisons, you know, in Los Angeles County that have been on lockdown for months now uh, because they are utterly unmanageable. Um, so it's, what, what's, it, I'm going on at some length, I think it's really important not to generalize from those very dramatic events to the rest of these populations. Uh, because it's, it's, it's easy to understand why those things are happening and they don't reflect the larger populations on either side of these communities. Okay. Uh, question here in the front. I'm taking the last question for this panel. However, please join us for our 15-minute break. After this, our panelists will be around for further discussion on the topic. So please join us. Hi, my name is Erica Sanchez. I have a question. In your survey, do you make it clear when you're surveying people whether their their question and their concerns are basically on Latino population or whether they're talking about Latino immigrants? The reason why I'm concerned about that is a lot of times when I go to new states that I'm known as the other category, they get so much to go back to your own country. I'm thinking, you know, I'm an American. I don't have a country to go back to. Because if I go to Puerto Rico, I'm considered to be an American. So I don't have a place to go. <coughs> my second question is this. I'm originally from Bronx, New York. When I went back to New York, there's, we usually don't have like a lot of Venezolanos, Hondurans, or Venezuelan, or even Mexicans there. And I went back, I saw the Mexican population. And I saw a lot of Puerto Ricans saying they need to go back to where they come from, or even Dominicans saying, hey, why are the Mexicans here? Has anybody done any research on brown and brown, their feelings about it, and the way they identify with that category? About John? self-identification within the Latino community? Within the Latino community, based on, because I know, for example, within the community, because I think politicians did this, so they divided us. For example, my birth certificate says I'm white. I don't associate with being white, but that's what I was given when I was born. So I'm wondering, what are some views about that? Because I know a lot of times when someone calls my house to survey me, and they're speaking to me in Spanish, I'm like, oh, another survey. They just want my opinion. But they don't make it clear about who they're talking to. They just go, hey, you're a Spanish household. They get my information. So I wonder where that gets lumped in as being an immigrant or being someone of Latin descent? Well, listen, on our survey, we asked people where they were born. Okay. okay. And in our analysis, we only pull out people who were immigrants. Okay. If they're native-born Latinos, they're not in our analysis. I think, I mean, I think that's why most 
Pew, I think, asked people where they were yeah. born. Yeah, or... I mean, you're probably getting phone calls because you've got a Hispanic surname. Yeah. Yes. And, and the, the you know, computers are searching. People are trying to survey Latinos are just, your name is just popping up and trolling. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the tension you described in New York City is, I mean, is, is very vivid and it's one because you've had a, um, a succession of, of groups there where Puerto Ricans for a time were the only mm -hmm. Latino group in, in, um, in New York City. The Dominican population grew very quickly grew to be larger than the Puerto Rican population, and the Mexican population, up until this recession, was was growing enormously fast. And I've heard the same comment from both Puerto Ricans and Dominicans in New York. It's like, you know, wait a minute, you know, I mean, it was just this town's not big enough. You know? And um, it, it's just it's classic ethnic succession. Yeah. I mean, you see this in every you know every port of entry immigrant city where the latest group is perceived as a threat by the ones who, who have sort of scratched and clawed their way to some kind of uh, position. You know? The litmus test is, you know, when you can get great Mexican food somewhere, then you know that that community is... <laughs> it's often the first thing that happens. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, no, I was just going to say, I think John Molokoff yeah. at City, at um, City University of New York Graduate Center, I think he and, oh, is it Kras, um, there's three authors. Mary Waters, Mary Waters John Molokoff, and Kresnicks, who have, are working on, they call it kind of immigrant New York, but it's about the various um, non-white populations and immigrant populations in New York and the nature of relationships among those groups. So it's John Molokoff. Yeah. Thank you so mm -hmm. much.